So if you've got your Bibles, grab them, and we're going to look at a uh, verse in Mark chapter 10, so you can turn there and hold your place. Uh, We continue our series this morning on some of the main attributes of God. It's not an exhaustive list. There are certainly other attributes we could add to this list, but um, we're looking at the main attributes, some of the main attributes of God. Today is part five, God is good. God is good. There was a song, actually, not that long ago, um, and uh, God is good. And, and so and so, in some churches, when you say God is good, and other people will say, and then the, somebody else says, and all the time, exactly, exactly. When your waiter comes to your table after a meal, and he asks you, he or she asks you, how was the food? You have to choose from different adjectives to describe how it tasted to you. If the experience was positive, but not the best, you might say, it was fine, as you shrug your shoulders a little bit. It ain't Perry's Steakhouse, but it was palatable, and it wasn't disgusting. And so it was fine. It was fine. Golden Corral, it's fine. Um, If you enjoyed it, you might say it was good. The temperature was good. The taste was good. It was good. But saying something is good is not usually the highest form of compliment. If the fajitas were good, that means they weren't great. If something is great or the best you've ever had, That's the highest form of compliment to the kitchen. Tell the chef, this was great. It was the best I've ever had. In non-moral things, good isn't the best. It's just good. However, when you talk about moral issues, good means something else. When you say at a funeral, he was a good man. You mean that he was one of the finest men you've ever known. You probably mean that he had integrity, that he was honest, he was compassionate, he was generous, he was kind, he was loving, etc. If you say, she did a good deed, you're referring to a morally good act that resulted in an increase of goodness in the world. They are morally good, and that's a really good thing. In Genesis, God created the world, and when he was done, he looked upon his creation and saw that it was good. The Hebrew for that word good is the word tav. And in Hebrew, this word means so much more than good because it is used in the Bible with a moral context. Tav means perfect, complete. Excellent. When God looked at creation and called it good, he wasn't thinking, I could have done better, but I'll settle for good. No, he was thinking this is perfect. This is complete. It lacks nothing. It's excellent. Therefore, it is tav. It is good. When Jesus was approached by a rich young man in Mark chapter 10, we're going to look at verse 18 in just a moment. Mark chapter 10, Jesus was asked, 
about what made his message distinct from what these Jews had been doing all along. How could he inherit the eternal life that Jesus talked about? Well, to bring up the subject, Jesus, uh, the rich young man uh, uh, called Jesus a good teacher. And by calling Jesus good teacher, he was asserting in their culture that Jesus was God because of what Jesus says to him next. The first thing that Jesus did was ensure that this rich young ruler, rich young man, understood what he had just said. Mark 10, verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So when he referred to him as good teacher, he was asserting a form of deity to Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see, and, and if you've got your bulletin there, blanks you can fill in, the first thing we see here is that when we say God is good, it means that he is perfect, complete, lacks nothing, and excellent. When we say God is good, we mean he is perfect. That's what the word good means in a moral sense. As we talked about in a previous message in this series, God is self-sufficient. This means that he's complete. He lacks nothing. If he was incomplete, if he lacked something, if he needed something apart from his own nature to exist, he wouldn't be God. He would be limited and not a sovereign, all-power, all-knowing, all-able God. When we talk to people about God being good, some reply with the loaded question, if God is good, then why does he send people to hell? Well, this question exposes the fact that they don't understand God, they don't understand what goodness really means, and they don't understand sin, salvation, and redemption. The truth is that God does not send anyone to hell. We send ourselves there because we willfully choose to sin. It's like a murderer standing before a judge. Judge, why you got to send me to jail? You broke the law. Yeah, but you could let me go. Yeah, but you're a murderer. Yeah, well, why do I got to go to prison? You broke the law, so you're going to go to jail. We all are lawbreakers. We all sin. We are all sending ourselves to an eternal prison. And so because God is holy and just, a death was required for the covering of our sins. Because God is perfect, only he could substitute himself and die in our place. Because God is loving, he chose to love us despite our sins and do this action so that we could be saved. Because God is good, he made a way for us to be saved so that we no longer had to die in our sins and our trespasses. So when we say that God is good, we mean it. He truly is good. He's good in the moral sense and the non-moral sense. He's good because he does good and loving things. That's the non-moral sense. He's good in the moral sense 
because he's perfect, he's complete, he lacks nothing. Everything he does is excellent and perfect. Thus, God and God alone is good. How can we know this? Well, that brings us to number two. God demonstrates his goodness in everything he does. He demonstrates his goodness in everything that he does. Since God is good, he demonstrates that. He shows that. If you want to know what somebody's really like, watch their character. You know, uh, the old expression, do as I do, not as I say. Um, you know, we people sometimes talk is cheap and they don't always do the right thing or say the right thing, but watch how a person behaves. Watch how they act and you'll know what they're really like. And that's when I tell my kids, I said, look, live your lives in such a way that if anyone were to accuse you of something, everybody around you would say, no, absolutely not. I know them. They don't do things like that. They don't act like that. Your character and your integrity will speak volumes to people around you. And so we see that God does this himself. He displays his character. He displays his goodness in everything he does. When Peter was explaining how salvation had come to the Gentiles in Acts 10.38, he said how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The writer of Psalms 119 said in verse 68, you are good and you do good. God demonstrates his goodness in everything that he does. He demonstrates his goodness through his actions. He does good things, morally perfect things, excellent things. God doesn't do miracles and healings halfway. He constantly shows that he is good for what he does for his people. We used to sing the song. I don't know if some of you remember this. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me and we sing this song because God had demonstrated his goodness over and over and over in our lives even in the dark moments even in the difficult moments even in the tragic moments we still saw God's goodness on full display God demonstrates his goodness through his actions but also through his faithful love Psalm 86 verse 5 it says, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You are good. If God was not good, he would not forgive our sins. Even if there was a way to make restitution. For instance, has anyone ever wounded you so deeply that there's pretty much nothing that they could ever say to you or do for you that would ever make it right? They betrayed you. They violated your trust. And because of how deep the wound is, you might feel like you would never forgive them even if they could make it right. Well, we are all violators of God's laws and God's covenant. 
Even when we knew the difference between right and wrong, we still chose wrong and we sinned against God. Gideon, being four years old, almost four years old now, he knows when he's done something wrong because he'll come in the room and Angela and I are in, in like the living room or whatever and he'll come in the room and he'll just kind of mope and he'll go, Mama, I'm sorry. And we're like, what are you sorry for? I did something you said not to do. And we're oblivious to it. We don't know what he's done. We're like, you know, to steal our credit cards, you know, is he, you know, has he cracked a safe or something? I mean, what has he done? But he comes to us, you know, with no provocation. We, we're not yelling, what are you doing? And sometimes we do, because when it's really quiet in there, if you've had, ever had toddlers, you know, when it's quiet, something's going on. <clears throat> we want quiet, but we're also suspicious of quiet. And so he, even he understands right and wrong, being almost four years old. We willfully, we know what God says to do, and there are times where we willfully choose the wrong. We willfully sin against a holy God. He is under absolutely no obligation to forgive us, yet he does. When we sin, after we have accepted Jesus Christ and we have chosen his way, his truth, his life, God is under no obligation to forgive our willful and rebellious behavior, yet he does. And he doesn't only forgive us, but he restores us and blesses us. Now, that's not license just to live however you want in sin. God knows your heart. And so he'll let you have the natural and the supernatural consequences of your actions. But he does not have to bless us. He does not have to restore us, and yet he chooses to. Our children try our patience. You know, my dad used to say, if I'd have known grandkids were this good, good I would have skipped straight to them. Apparently, raising me was a bit of a chore. I don't know why. I thought I was a pretty good child. Um, but when we have children, they try our patience. They violate our rules. They willfully rebel against what we say. They get a little lippy sometimes, a little mouthy, a little sassy. And yes, we could grab them by the belt loops and toss them right out of the house the first time they did that, and we would probably be in the right to do so, not legally, but morally, because they violated our rules. They do not belong here anymore. They don't get to just live here and do what they want to do. There are rules, and they must abide by them, and we could grab them and just toss them right out. But every one of us would have been a homeless toddler as well if that had been what our parents had done. Instead, we lovingly discipline them and we restore them. They don't become any less of a son or daughter when they disobey. Now, they might not be our favorite child at the moment, but we still love them and we still supply their needs. We don't withhold meals or take their mattress and make them sleep on the box springs or something. You know, we don't, we don't, we're not cruel to them. They're punished and then restored. We do this because we're good parents. Now, Jesus alluded to this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is a good God, and he enjoys blessing his children with good things. He's not looking for the first opportunity to throw us out of the kingdom. If that had been the case, none of us would have been a Christian longer than a week. We mess up. The old nature rears its ugly head. Temptations bombard us, and we sin either in doing something we shouldn't do or not doing something that we should do. And yet, God is good. Not only forgiving our offense, but he also doesn't hang it over our heads. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, that's an infinite distance, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He forgives us, and he chooses to separate us, our identity, from the identity of sin that we had. As far as the east is from the west. That's how good God is. He doesn't have to do it, but he does. Because he loves us. And because he knows that if he held it over our head every single time we made a mistake, we would be destroyed. Some of you may have had a parent that you were never good enough for them. You could never do enough good. You messed up one time and they never let you forget it. And they held it over your head. That one C minus that you got on report card. Everything was A's, but the C minus that you got, they never let you forget it. You got six A's on that report card. Got into the honor roll, got onto the, the I don't know what, what the rest of it's called, the honor society, you know, all this great stuff. But man, this one mistake you made, and they didn't let you forgive it, and you couldn't ever live up to their standard. You always felt like you were trying to live to overcome some mistake that you had made in their eyes. But God doesn't do that. As far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. Let's look at an aspect of God that's often overlooked uh, when it comes to God's goodness. Let's talk about the law. Most of us sitting at a stop sign or a red light are way more annoyed than thankful. We're almost always in a hurry. How dare you go slow in front of me, making me late due to my poor time management skills? How dare you? We are almost always in a hurry. This is Houston. Don't get on the road if you're not in a hurry. We want everyone to get out of our way because we're important people and we've got important places to go to do important things that are important to us. I'm an important man. Move. Get out of the way. 
But that red light, that stop sign is actually good. It is good. If everyone obeys, it prevents you from being T-boned on the way home. It protects you. It protects your vehicle. It protects those inside of the vehicle from bodily harm or death. The law was set in place not to annoy you, but to keep you safe. God's laws are the same way. Yes, they hinder certain kinds of conduct, but that's to protect you from the selfish behavior of others and to protect others from your selfish behavior. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, he said, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away from the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. This is just one example of plenty where biblical writers talk about how good God is because he gave us rules to follow. He gave us rules to protect us from seen and unseen dangers. And listen to what the psalmist wrote. Teach me your statutes and I'll keep them. I will observe your law with my whole heart. Lead me in your commandments, for I delight in them. Growing up, when your parents gave you rules to follow, did you say, I delight in these rules? Thank you. Thank you so much for being so strict with me. No. You didn't. Nobody does. But David, or whoever wrote Psalm 119, is saying that to God. You've given us 613 commandments in the Torah, and I delight in every single one of them. Give me life in your ways. Your rules are good. I long for your teachings. When do we approach God's word that way? You might, you know, it is possible, but I mean, have you ever approached God's laws that way and his commands? God, I delight in your commands. They're not burdensome. They're not exhausting. You gave them to protect me and to give me life. So thank you for your instruction. I think it would be wonderful if our children came to us and said that to us. Thank you. For giving me a curfew. My friends, they don't have one. Their parents clearly hate them. They don't care about their welfare. They don't care what they do. Thank you for telling me about the places that I can and cannot go. We tell our kids, nothing good happens after midnight. Nothing good happens after midnight. And so we expect our children to be home at a reasonable time. We do not want them on the road when the bars are closing and when drunk drivers hit the streets because we love our children. And so we tell them, look, we can't go to sleep until we know you're in the house safely. 
So we give them a curfew. We want them to be home, safe in bed. And when, when they understand that, while it may be a, an inconvenience to stop what they're doing, hanging out with friends, stop the movie that they started at 11.15 and they knew they weren't going to finish it in time to leave, but they did it anyway and they thought, I'll roll the dice. I'll text dad and see if he's okay with me being late. And dad texts back, no, I'm not. Show up at midnight or you're in trouble. I'm not saying that really happened, but it was oddly specific if it didn't. We love them. We don't want anything bad to happen to them. So we set up rules because we are good parents. God demonstrates his goodness in everything that he does. His actions, his faithful love, and his instruction. And finally this morning, number three, God works bad circumstances for good outcomes. God works bad circumstances out for good outcomes. Um, this can be hard to accept in the moment when something bad happens to you. You got overlooked for a promotion. You got laid off. You got a bad diagnosis. It's hard in the moment to accept a bad circumstance. But we as Christians un must understand the Bible is full of examples to prove this point. Paul was writing to the church in Rome, and he wrote in chapter 8 about times where we should have or we do have spiritual weakness. He wrote in Romans 8, 26 through 28. He said, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And here it is, a very well-known, well-quoted scripture. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, a lot of us have heard that phrase, God works all things together for good. It's not that all things are good and therefore God can work good things out of them. That would be easy. It's, uh, we need to understand betrayal is not good. Cancer is not good. Divorce isn't good. Murder isn't good. But somehow, in God's great providence, he can take even bad things and turn them around for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He can take bad things and bring some good outcomes from them. In my life alone, God has used a flat tire as an occasion to share the gospel. Who likes flat tires? Right, exactly. It's a pain. It's an inconvenience. And it's so funny because there were times where I'd walk by and I'd go, man, I need a new tire. And God says, yeah, you're going to need one in about 30 minutes. You get on the road and pop. But God used an occasion of a flat tire for me to preach the gospel to somebody. Either it was my flat tire and I got to preach to somebody who stopped and helped, or it was somebody else's flat tire. You know, if you stop now, you do need to be careful, so you need to obey the Holy Spirit. If he says, don't stop, they're crazy, keep going. But if he says, stop and render aid, you stop, and you know what? They ain't going anywhere until, they put, until you help them put that tire on. They're a captive audience. It's not like they're going to run away. They'll leave their car here. 
So you just change the tire slowly. Just preach the gospel. Just say, you know, do you know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Don't, you know, you don't have to start it off that way. But uh, God used an oil light in my wife's vehicle uh, for me to share the gospel with a Mormon and to, to share the, uh, the truth of Jesus Christ with him. Uh, yes, it was an inconvenience to have to uh, grab some oil and meet her and put the oil in and all this stuff, but God created an opportunity for me to share the gospel with this individual. Uh, God taught me lessons after my dad's tragic death. And these lessons enabled me to give hope and healing to families who were dealing with tragedy in their own lives so that good can come out of terrible situations. Now, one of the clearest pictures of God bringing something good out of a terrible situation is the life of Joseph. He was the favored son of Jacob. He did no manual labor. That was the whole purpose of the uh, the coat that he wore of many colors. It was a sign of his favor. It was the coat that management wore. So when you had a coat like that, you did not do manual labor. You were higher in the org chart than the brothers were. And so the brothers hated him. They hated his dreams. They hated how his father favored him. If you read uh, this account, the story of Joseph, they hated Joseph. And then he said something that annoyed them. And then the Bible says they hated him even more. And then he does something else. He's like, hey, let me tell you this other dream I had where y'all bow down to me and worship the ground I walk on. And they hated him even more. I'm like, man, that is serious business. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Why? Because of this story. Joseph's brothers hated him. And so what did they plan on doing? They planned on murdering him. But thankfully, one of the brothers stepped in and said, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery and be rid of him. So they devised a plan to be rid of him, to be rid of his stupid dreams, to be rid of his, his, his arrogance or whatever, rid of that coat. And so instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. So they would never see him again. He'd be off and... and Dad would think he's long gone, and they wouldn't have to look at his ugly face anymore. Well, things didn't go so great in Egypt. Joseph was enslaved, but God had a plan. Though he was in prison for a crime he didn't commit. I mean, you want to talk about really just going downhill. Life has just changed so dramatically, and things are going really bad for Joseph. And even when he started to get some favor with Potiphar and, and this one household in Egypt, he was accused of a crime he didn't commit, and he was arrested and thrown in prison. And he wasn't just thrown in regular prison, he was thrown in Pharaoh's prison, where Pharaoh's enemies were tortured and punished. So it was bad, really, really bad. But he was exactly where God needed him to be in order that Pharaoh might hear about him and witness God's presence with him. And so he was elevated from prisoner in Pharaoh's prison to prime minister of Egypt in the length of time it took him to, uh, 
to interpret Pharaoh's dream. The next time his brothers saw him, they didn't even recognize him. But he was in a position of power to save not just the nation of Egypt, but those in surrounding nations from the famine because he was surrendered to God's plan even if it didn't make sense to him. Hear that again. He was surrendered to God's plan even if it did not make sense to him. Joseph reminded his brothers of God's amazing providence. Genesis chapter 50 Verse 20, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me. And they had committed evil against him. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph even said to his brothers earlier in Genesis 45, he said, and God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. God had a plan all along to save these brothers that uh, plotted murder and were willing to just throw Joseph's destiny to the wind. All they did was ensure that his dreams came to fulfillment. But they didn't realize that at the time. What the enemy meant for evil, God can turn it around for good. What was supposed to be the end of Joseph's life, the end of Joseph's dreams, the end of Joseph's destiny, only put him on a collision course with God's destiny for him. How else? Could God get Joseph to Egypt and be in a position to stand before Pharaoh because a famine was coming and God knew it and God had prepared the way? While sitting at the bottom of that pit with his brothers plotting his murder above him or while being sold into slavery or while sitting in a prison for a crime he didn't commit, God brought something incredibly good out of it. Because he was surrendered to God's plan, even if it didn't make sense. Do not be nearsighted about your situations and your circumstances. God plays the long game. And the good that he brings about is because goodness is his nature. God is good all the time. God and God alone. Is good. Worship team, would you come up and would you please stand with me this morning? Because God is good. What is our response? Well, the psalmist tells us what we should do in Psalm 135, verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Hopefully you can look back on your life and you can see a time when the enemy meant something for evil, but God brought something amazingly good out of it. You might be able to see how God is working right now in a situation. And you might be so thankful to, to see God's goodness 
on display. We rarely are thankful for the trials and tribulations. We're rarely thankful for the bad news that we get. But the scripture reminds us, Paul says, rejoice in all things. I say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, in every situation, in the bad, in the good. Rejoice in the Lord because God will bring something good out of that bad situation if you're willing to be surrendered to him and trust his goodness. We worship and we praise God, not because we're good and not because we're on an emotional high. We worship and we praise God because he is good. In any and every situation, God is good. Our response to that goodness is to exalt and to bless his name. Worship with us this morning, and then we'll close in prayer. God has given us so many reasons to see his goodness displayed and to understand why we worship, to understand how he deserves our worship and our praise. And I just encourage you, you will face difficult days. You will face challenges. Life will throw you a curveball and you'll never see it coming. But in those moments, never doubt the goodness of God. One of the most reassuring things is that nothing takes God by surprise. He, he doesn't sit up there in heaven and nudge Gabriel and say, man, I did not see that coming. That never happens. He is all-knowing. He knows what we will face well before we will. He knew of the famine coming in Egypt. And so he put people in place that had to deal with some bad circumstances to get there. But how many millions and millions of people were saved? Not just then, but then their descendants and descendants after that and for generations and generations. The entire nation of Israel was saved through the challenges and the difficulties that Joseph faced. An entire nation of people, two actually and more, Egypt and Israel, were all saved. But that meant Joseph had to go through some difficult times. So don't think that God has got it out for you, that God is trying to punish you. You, if you commit sin, then there may be some, there may be spiritual consequences, natural consequences of your sin. But if you haven't and bad things are happening to you, just rejoice. Rejoice always because God can bring and he will good things out of bad situations. Father, we ask that you will help just help us always remember that. That you're not an evil, wicked God. You're a good God, and you mean good for us. You do good things, and you are good. You're complete. You're perfect. And we may not understand the circumstances we face, but we can still rejoice in them and say, Lord, thank you for the delay. Thank you for this trial, because it, it is helping me develop my character. Thank you for this 
challenge, this difficulty, because I know that you're going to bring something good out of it. I know you're going to get the glory because I'm fully surrendered to your will. And I want to see your goodness on display. So Lord, help us have that perspective at all times. We love you, God. We thank you for your love, your goodness, and your mercy, and your compassion towards your children. Help us this week share the goodness of God with someone we come in contact with. Not about, you know, well, God has blessed me with a big house and a bunch of cars and all this stuff. It's that God has blessed me and saved me from my sin. And he has cleansed me from all my unrighteousness. He has created a new and clean heart within me. And I will bless his name. It doesn't matter about anything else. If I were dirt poor, I'd still worship the Lord. Because he is good. And his faithfulness endures forever. So, Lord, we thank you. Let that be the position of our heart and our minds this week. We love you, God. Be exalted in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.